Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where experts are given just six minutes to present their argument, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include the future of the U.S. Navy and Henry David Thoreau and Walden. Our first speaker today will be Greg Easterbrook, who is the author of The Blue Age, How the U.S. Navy Created Global Prosperity and Why We're in Danger of Losing It. Since the end of the Second World War, the U.S. Navy has been the guardian of the global ocean commons. Safe global navigation has led to massive increases in global trade and higher living standards for everyone, and particularly for the previously poor nations in Asia. I hope to learn from Greg today is what the likely consequences are for the new naval arms race between the U.S. and China, and will it lead inexorably towards war or continued peaceful coexistence. Technology has always played a key role in naval wartime success. The replacement of coal with oil allowed the Royal Navy to succeed in the First World War, and the dominant role of the aircraft carrier explained the U.S. naval success in the second. I want to find out from Greg how the U.S. Navy will adapt to the Chinese challenge to its dominance, particularly in the South China Sea. Our second speaker today is Laura Walls, who is the William and Hazel White Professor of English at Notre Dame and the author of the biography entitled Henry David Thoreau, A Life. Henry David Thoreau and his mentor, Ralph Waldo Emerson, were the leaders in American transcendentalism. I want to find out from Laura how the ideas of transcendentalism are still driving the intellectual and environmental movements today. Walden and Self-Reliance were required reading in my junior year study of high school American literature, but it was not taught to either of my children who attended New York City private schools. I want to learn about whether the Thoreau movement should continue to be a part of the high school curriculum. During the live call, please feel free to email me questions at LarryBernstein1 at gmail.com. All right, let's begin today's program with our first speaker, Greg Easterbrook. Go ahead, Greg. Uh, hi, Larry. Hi, everyone listening. I will give you the six-minute version of my new book, The Blue Age. First, I want to make a brief pitch for the interdisciplinary approach to life. I live in Washington, D.C. We do policy debate all the time. We do it well and poorly, mainly poorly. But a lot of our policy debate and the current budget debate is an example of this boils down to expert number one argues for more funding for field number one. Expert number two argues for more funding for field number two. Laura, probably you find similar phenomenon in, in the world of academia. But what really matters is how do all these things fit together. And that's why I want to pitch all of you listening to the interdisciplinary view of the world. Yes, it's great to hear from experts, but it's more important to learn how all the pieces fit together. And why I start like this is that the book, The Blue Age, is about how three big pieces fit together. Although it begins and ends with the U.S. Navy, the middle of the book is about economics and, and about environmental protection and government Government, that's a hard word to say, governance issues, because when you go down to the oceans that cover three-quarters of the Earth's surface, all three of these things are happening at once, and how they fit together is the key to the story. So to give you the three-part view of that, the first part is American naval power. We are living in the longest period without combat at sea since Phoenicia. 4,000 years ago, and I'm not kidding, that's not an exaggerated comparison. You, you really have to go back 4,000 years to find a time when, ocean, when nations didn't fight each other 
brutally, usually, at sea on a regular basis. We're living in this pause, and it's been great for the world. Let's hope it continues, this, this pause I call the Blue Age. Uh, and the main reason, there are several reasons. That my, my book details them. Can't de- detail them all on this call, but I could say it's clear that the main reason is the power of the United States Navy. The United States has obtained something that many nations, Britain, Spain, the, uh, the, the Dutch, and others sought in the past. We finally actually have total hegemony over the sea. And political science assumes that hegemony is a bad word. Hegemony is bad when it's abused. The United States Navy has not abused its power. Instead, it's served as a guardian force for almost all the nations of the world, even guarding the commercial ships of our competitor nations. So the main thing that's going on right now on the seas is is the United States Navy is has even has total rule. There's some question about what will happen with the Chinese later. But remember, when we talk about competition with the Chinese, we talk about how we might fight in the South China Sea, which is their backyard. Nobody ever talks about fighting in the Gulf of Mexico, our backyard, because that's not going to happen. Now, the second major point to put into this is what does safety on the seas, okay, that's great, nobody wants ships being sunk, but what's the result? The result is the unprecedented flowering of international trade that's happened in our lifetimes. 25% of the global GDP, which is a gigantic number when you phrase it in dollars, now moves by seawater. At the beginning, 100 years ago, that figure was 5%. Now we're up to 25%. The flowering of international trade has allowed for higher living standards in the United States. It has in the main controlled inflation, and we see inflation rising right now, 2021, for the first time in 20 years. And why is that happening? Because global supply chains are disrupted. Trade has been disrupted. Uh, so the, the, the unseen, that, that we see, it happens around us, living standards. What we don't see, Larry alluded to, is the incredible decline of poverty in Asia. It's been, this decline has been caused almost entirely by global trade and is one of the greatest achievements in human history and visible to us in the West, but something that matters every day to more than a billion people who are now living in a decent standard instead of in poverty. The third piece of this puzzle is ocean governance. That 75% of the Earth's surface is essentially ungoverned. There's a law of the sea treaty, but it's weak and has no enforcement mechanism. Environmental abuse, abuse of labor, especially in the Asian fishing industry, is rampant at the sea. We don't see any of it happening. And all of this is about to spread to the Arctic Ocean, which is about to become navigable. We need a very improved way to govern the seas. And, and I think one is coming, and I speculate on what it might be in the book. Finally, I'll wrap up this quick introduction section by saying, obviously, as Larry alluded, a new naval arms race has begun, mainly with China, but the United Kingdom, Vietnam, Japan, and many other nations, are, and, 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 in, and India, don't forget India, are participating in the new naval arms race. Naval arms races came before both world wars. Will the new naval arms race start a third world war? I don't think so, and I state the reasons why, but but it's a genuine concern, and it's a concern that we in the United States should be much more aware of than we seem to be today. In fact, I think all the Western capitals need to be much more aware of the the, the downside risk of a new naval, naval arms race 
more aware than we are today. All right, that's my basic uh, summary. Greg, thank you. Um, I want to start with your last line about um, France, the UK, and India, Vietnam, and Japan also joining in this uh, expansion in naval resources. What's unusual for a great power is that it it very rarely asks other countries to uh, arm itself. Um, and I would, I would suspect that the United States uh, does not view the U.S., France, India, Japan as, as a threat, but looks at those countries as um, allies to help contain Chinese aggression. And they sort of like uh, it's in its previous wars in the Middle East, it's, it's looking for a coalition, uh, a global coalition to preserve against bad behavior. How should we think about this arms race um, in its international scope? Well, first, I would say think about it from the point of view of other nations, not us. We're, we're, we're the big dogs at sea, and we will be for some number of years to come. Uh, we don't need to get any bigger and stronger at sea. We just need to respond to in specific individual things that the Chinese are doing. Uh, but other nations observe us. The United States, we're by far and away the number one nation in the world, and we have by far and away the best navy in the world. Then they look at China. They're by far and away the number two nation in the world. And what are they doing? They're building both warships and commercial ships at the fastest pace of any nation on Earth. They're building ports. They're installing cranes. So the two big dogs are building our maintaining strong navies and increasing their global trade. Other nations say, you know what, that's what we should do. We should build a strong navy and increase global trade. So that's what's happening, especially in India, Vietnam, in Japan. Japan is, is, is laying the groundwork for building long-range aircraft carriers, something that it has not possessed since World War II. The Royal Navy in the last year has launched its two largest warships ever. This didn't happen in 1943. This happened in 2020. And some of it is desire for naval power to control, contain is a better word, because we won't control China, but we can contain China. Some of it's a desire for naval power, and some of it's a desire to be able to assure, to assure that they can keep sea lanes open and keep global trade happening, because global trade is good for almost everybody, despite what Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders will say, even almost everybody in the, in the Ohio Valley benefits from global trade. Other nations see this. We're not, certainly not discouraging that, we meaning the United States. We've cooperated, we meaning the United States, actively with India, Australia, and other nations in, in increasing their, uh, their naval strength, and we're cooperating actively with Taiwan right now on the same uh, goal. All right, let's talk about Taiwan next. Um, in the last few days, the Chinese have been sending air sorties uh, into Taiwanese uh, airspace. And um, clearly, there's some risk uh, now and, and in the years ahead that the Chinese might plan uh, a large-scale invasion of Taiwan. And the question is, uh, what is the United States and its allies going to do about it? Um, what do you, how do you think about that risk? And then we'll kind of get, get into some detail about how to, uh, how to deal with it from a Navy perspective. But well, there's always technology changes over time. Um, how can the U.S. Navy and the, and the Taiwanese Navy protect itself against an invasion by China? Well, there, there's a lot of pro projects in progress that may or may not work. And 
my fondest hope is that we'll never find out because they'll never be tested. But I'll cite one of them for you. Two years ago, Taiwan started building a fleet of fast reaction mine layers that can mine the approaches to the Taiwan Strait very quickly, like within 24 hours. That fleet is now patched into the U.S. satellite surveillance network. If the Chinese Navy makes a serious move toward Taiwan, the Taiwanese authorities will know about it in time to mine the Strait of Taiwan. And is that enough to discourage China from trying? I hope so, because I hope they never try. Um, but, but it's something that didn't exist in previous generations, and it's a, it's a pretty strong threat to Chinese naval power being used in an aggressive way. It doesn't threaten Chinese, China's ability to defend itself. And so the kind of, thing, the kind of weapon that's only defensive is a, is a pretty good type of weapon. But as I say, uh, what would happen if it was used? You, you may remember that 25 years ago, China started to launch an invasion fleet for Taiwan. The United States, when Bill Clinton was president, put two aircraft, put two supercarrier strike groups in the Strait of Taiwan, and that was the end of that. Uh, if we put two supercarrier strike groups to the same place today, would that necessarily be enough to make the Chinese back down? Maybe not. But at the same time, there's never been a great power relationship like today's between the United States and China. Uh, I, I quote a Naval War College professor in the Blue Ages saying, a war between the United States and China, what does victory even look like? If China won the battle, they'd still lose the war because their economy would collapse and their people would rebel. And I think China understands that very clearly, and I think that's the main reason that the United States and China will not fight over Taiwan. Just thinking about it from the, uh, the Taiwanese perspective, um, you know, this is an existential threat to their very society, and and so they'll they have more to to lose than than we do, um, and so I can imagine a scenario where um, it may not be in our interest to fight to save Taiwan. Um, the old line, are we willing to give up Los Angeles? The answer is no. So um, Taiwan will probably have to fight this themselves. In your book, you talk about um, soft targets. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, once imagine they, they mine it, they are doing their best to, to limit the Chinese ability to, to land forces in Taiwan. But China has just so many soft targets. Uh, I'll just pick a couple. You know, there are chemical plants in China. You, they, the Taiwanese could blow them up and create an environmental disaster. They can take uh, – the Chinese are so proud of their uh, – high-speed train lines. They could destroy the bridges uh, for those trains. They have dams and other things that they could blow up. Uh, they could destroy um, those super container ships in, in the ports and destroy all the major ports in China and just uh, eliminate them as an export center. How does China think about their weaknesses uh, and their soft targets in the contest uh, with Taiwan? In... in, in in the annals of military affairs, it's common for nations to overestimate their opponents. And I don't even consider China an opponent. I just consider them a competitor. But suppose, they, suppose you were Taiwan, and they would be your opponent. Uh, China may look very strong from the outside. It's remarkably weak from the inside. Chinese society is unstable. They're already start, China is already starting to age out as a society. 
in 20 years, China will have more retirees than the entire population of the United States. And China is very perilously balanced sociologically. Um, increased food production, which they're doing a great job with, but if anything goes wrong with it, that's going to change. They're very perilously balanced on water supplies. The south-north aqueduct that the Chinese are almost finished building is the largest and arguably most important public works project in the world. And a few well-placed cruise missiles would flood the whole thing. And I think the Chinese know it, and I think that's another reason that uh, they're going to bluster like crazy to Taiwan. And if they can make a diplomatic agreement to reunite the two Chinas, a diplomatic agreement that was entered into voluntarily, that would be great. But the odds of them starting a war, I think, are pretty low, and and for the reasons that you specify, Larry. You know, um, historically, great trading partners um, have gone to war. Um, you know, the UK, France, and uh, Germany um, have fought for reasons that ex anti and ex post look foolish. Um, why do you suppose that we end up in these long-dated fights? Um, and then, I mean, you, you've given rational reasons why we shouldn't fight, but oftentimes we do. How do we explain that irrationality and behavior? Well, I, I would guess that many of your listeners have read the great book by Barbara Tuckman, The March of Folly, that's about why nations do things that in retrospect seem completely ridiculous. And that, and that the fact that what they're doing is completely ridiculous was actually known at the time. And unfortunately, we can cite examples of that involving the United States and its behavior in Vietnam. Um, if you go back and look at the period just before World War I, some people would say the strongest argument against my mainly optimistic position is that, well, this was being said before World War I, too, and then look what happened. But in World War I, about 5% of the global economy was based on trade, and less than 10% of Germany's economy was based on trade. Germany could tell itself, it seemed ridiculous in retrospect, but they could tell themselves the things we're going to seize and steal by war are worth more than the loss of trade that we'll inevitably have to overcome. No way China could tell itself that today. No way India could tell itself that. No way the United States could tell itself that. The, the, the case for interdependence, another hard word to say, is so much stronger than it was 100 years ago. I'm hoping it will hold. But it is true that nations have behaved in illogical ways in the past. I would say right now the biggest danger is that because China is unstable, as we were just discussing, unstable nations, when they're on the verge of collapse, tend to lash out. There are many examples of that in history. What will happen if the Chinese decide to lash out? Not against us. I don't think they'll be foolish enough to lash out against us, but Vietnam, Malaysia, there's a lot of places on the Pacific Rim that, that cannot defend themselves against the Chinese military. And then the question will be, do we intercede? Uh, I, I, I did a call with the U.S. Naval Academy Book Club a few nights ago where one of the questions was, if the Chinese make a serious move toward Taiwan, do we put the fleet between China and Taiwan? And 
Uh, I'm an old, washed-up hippie. The thought of recommending war for anybody under any circumstances other than to fight Nazis or communists, any other circumstance, it just gives you the willies to recommend war. But I think we do, and for whatever it's worth, the Naval Academy graduates who were on the call were polled, and 100% of them said we put the fleet between the two countries. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I want to talk about uh, technology for a second. I, I, in my introduction, I mentioned um, that in each generation, there's a te- technological improvement that changes the balance of power or the, or the worthiness of different sorts of strategic uh, approaches to naval war. Um, the carriers, as you mentioned in your book, um, are quite um, vulnerable to certain sort of ballistic weapons. Uh, during the Falklands con- uh, conflict, um, the Argentines used uh, a French anti-ship uh, missile and was able to sink the Sheffield um, eas- rather easily, even with very advanced weapons. Um, China can invest just a little bit of money in these ballistics, and it puts one of our supercarriers at risk. Do you think on that basis um, that the Americans will be very wary of putting um, the carriers within reach of a ballistic missile uh, from the Chinese shore? Well, this is one of the concerns, should the United States and China fight in the general area of the South China Sea, will we have to withdraw our carriers far enough away from their land-launched ban- land uh, anti-ship missiles, which have a range of a couple of hundred miles? It's possible that that would happen. Uh, uh, there's a pretty strong feeling, and I think this feeling is right, that the day of the supercarrier is about to end. We have two more under, the keels have been, hulls have been laid, and two more on the drawing board, and I think they will be the last supercarriers built by any nation. But also bear in mind, no supercarrier has ever been attacked in battle. We assume they're vulnerable. We don't actually know. It might be that they would uh, acquit themselves well. Uh, again, like I hope we'll never find out who would win a fight over Taiwan. I hope we'll never find out whether supercarriers are vulnerable. Any opponent who attacks an American supercarrier would run the risk of a, a, a horrific backlash if the attack wasn't totally successful. You know, just thinking this thing through, um, you know, when you have aircraft to project forward power, um, it's much easier to do so on land than it is at sea um, because supercarriers have that certain vulnerability. Why won't it make more sense just to land the American fighters uh, on ta- at Taiwanese military airports in lieu of maintaining it in the strait? Well, it's certainly possible that that would happen. Uh, one of the beauties of the supercarrier is that it's a moving target. You, you never know for sure where it's going to be. And mm-hmm. if it's in place A, tomorrow it can be in place B. Uh, you've got to chase it. Uh, Overall, it's, you know, as, as I say, the day of the supercarrier is ending, and we want it to end in a peaceful, successful way rather, rather than to end as, uh, as the, the dreadnoughts that all got sunk at Jutland in, in 1916. Uh, but there is some psychological value also to the ability to project power. I uh, describe in some detail in Blue Age the fact that the United States is the only nation in the history of the world that's ever successfully used a naval strategy called forward deployed, meaning that even in peacetime, your your main capital ships 
most of them are positioned very far from home, so that the early hours of any kind of fight would involve the good guys attacking the bad guys in their own neighborhood and the bad guys not able to do anything about it in the good guys' neighborhood. And the, the, the age of the ability to do that with supercarriers may be ending, but uh, for, don't forget, supercarriers are only one aspect of American naval power. We have all kinds of submarines whose, location, whose locations are literally unknown, and they launch all kinds of nasty weapons that aren't nuclear weapons. They launch nuclear weapons, too. But we have, we have four arsenal subs now that, that used to be nuclear subs that each carry more than 100 cruise missiles, and two of them at any moment are within firing range of China. China does not know where they are. And in the early hours of any serious fight, they would destroy every power station in China. China would not be able to do anything even remotely similar to us, and that's another reason why China will probably never go to war with us. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting about naval warfare is that when one power is stronger than the other, it, it can have total victory. Um, and you, ex- you gave an example in your book of the um, violent exchange, the battle between uh, the Bismarck and the Hood. And you said, well, that battle lasted about five minutes. Um, and I'm wondering if we could think of it in the same – and as um, later in, in, in both World War I and World War II, the German uh, Navy spent a lot of its time you know, in its own ports, very nervous and scared to, to leave for fear of being sunk. Do you suspect that um, given the relative strength currently between the U.S. Navy and the Chinese one um, – that they will act, the Chinese will be more like the Germans because of the differential in uh, quality of, its def- of, of the fighting forces that China would end up being uh, very close to home, very near port or in port for fear that if it gets out there, it will you know, face dire consequences. Well, China has two aircraft carriers. They're both rudimentary by American standards. Neither of them is a nuclear carrier. Neither of them is capable of launching long-range jets. They're both what navalists call ski jump carriers that can only launch short-range aircraft. So they're very uncomfortable to have those ships more than a short distance from home. And the Chinese government would have to know that if our two nations fought today, and I don't think they will, and I hope they never do, but if they fought today, both those aircraft carriers would go to Davy Jones's locker within the first couple of hours of any mm-hmm. battle with the United States Navy. Uh, and think how, b- beyond making China weaker, think how the Chinese Communist Party would be embarrassed by that. They've spent mm-hmm. 10 years boasting about their rising naval m- muscle power, and, and it would sink in a few hours. Uh, and they would probably sink something important of ours, too. But it wouldn't happen as fast. It wouldn't happen within sight of their own shores. Think of what think of what a calamity this would be for China if their carriers sunk, and they are building one supercarrier. And boy, I guarantee you that one would be the very first thing that we would wipe out, and they wouldn't be able to defend it. And the the good part is that they know all this stuff, and the fact that they know all this stuff uh, discourages war. So, how do we explain their behavior? Why are they? Um... Uh, describe it as, as doing two different things. One is, why are they expanding to have this, this large navy, even though they probably won't be able to use it effectively, uh, and they'll be scared to use it? And second is, is um, 
why be so bellicose with the Taiwanese? Um, and is this a, a needless escalation? Imagine that the Taiwanese responded in kind and started buzzing uh, Shanghai or Beijing with its aircraft. Uh, I, I just they would go apoplectic. The Chinese is what? What, what are they up to here? What, what, what is their short and long-term plan? Well, first I'd say I don't think it's realistic to think that Taiwan could conduct any kind of meaningful strikes on, on the Chinese homeland. They only have a small number of jets, and their jets basically wouldn't get through. So uh, their, their military is almost entirely defensive in nature. Uh, Got it. So why are, the, why are the Chinese expanding their fleet, and they're, and they're adding warships faster than any other nation in the world, even if they're unlikely to fight the United States? Well... Actually, going to war is only one of the several possible uses of a powerful navy. Think of how we use our navy. Our navy hasn't actually gone to war since the Korean War, and it, and it played a, a, only a mild role in that war. Uh, there's a psychological component. There's political prestige involved. There's the ability to say our commercial ships are escorted by one of our destroyers. Don't mess with them. We've done things like that. Uh, over on the American side, there is the ability to flex your muscles. You send a powerful fleet to war in the general direction of Taiwan while announcing, don't worry, we're not going to attack you. You might convince the Taiwanese government to enter into peace negotiations. If so, then your fleet has been a huge success without a mm -hmm. shot being fired. I describe in, in the Blue Age a naval exercise in 1992 where the United States Navy sent the most powerful battle fleet that had moved anywhere in the world since World War II directly toward the Soviet Union through the North Sea. And they had no intention of shooting. The, the, the Russians knew they had no intention of shooting, but it was a way of saying, look what we can do to you if we've got a mind to do it. And it was one of the things that brought the, the old Soviet Union to the no negotiating table for the, for the uh, eventual agreements that ended the Cold War and then and then one of the things that led to the collapse of the old version of communism when the Communist Party of Russia finally accepted that it was just simply impossible for them to overcome United States power. So a Navy can be really useful for all these reasons without any shots fired. You know, we have um, obviously many different parts of our armed forces. We've got you know, the Army, the, the Air Force, the Marines, and the Navy. And to your point that the Navy really hasn't played a significant role um, since World War II, where the other branches of our armed forces have been very active. Um, why focus on the Navy uh, relative to investments? You started your whole talk by saying we have lots of budget debates, expert one for more spending in field one, expert two for more f uh, spending in field two. And imagine that we replace that with the other uh, members of the Joint Chiefs, um, for the Marines, for the Air Force, for the Army, and the Navy. Why would you want to spend more money or increase your spending in the Navy relative to the other branches of the armed forces? Oh, well, I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen, and I don't advocate it. What I advocate is keeping the U.S. Navy strong. I think we should all appreciate how much it benefits almost everybody in the world. It benefits us, sure, but all, almost all the other nations in the world benefit from the United States Navy being the global police force of the seas. Uh, but I don't think their budget should increase. I don't think it's practical. Uh, over the years, the Navy has gotten roughly a third of the Pentagon budget. I don't think uh, I'm okay with that distribution. Uh, I don't think the Pentagon budget should increase. I think our 
our military is plenty strong enough, and there are other social concerns, and there's that looming debt out there that we've been, we, the United States, been printing money like crazy for 20 years without ever triggering higher interest rates. If higher interest rates start, we're going to be real unhappy about all aspects of that. So I think the Navy has to live within its means. When I, when I talk, including to the Academy Book Club a couple of nights ago, they all say we need more ships, we need more ships. Yeah, expert one wants more for his group, expert two mm-hmm. wants more for her group, etc. I think they, they, they may get more ships in the sense that they get uh, a lot of small distributed autonomous ships. I'd be all in favor of lots of those. But they're going <coughs> to have to live within their own means when it comes to budget because really the whole United States government has got to learn to live within its own means. The spending spree cannot go on forever. At some point, it will stop. We have a question from our audience. This one's from Mike Howe. Mike wants to know, um, is, is the naval battles, as you said, if they're finished, um, should we expect more engagement through aircraft, drones, satellite warfare, etc.? Where, where will the next war be fought and how? Well, I, I wouldn't claim to have that large a vision whether the, to, to be able to say whether they will be fighting on land again. Uh, there, I spend some time in the Blue Age speculating on why war in general has declined. Uh, and one reason, of course, is the end of the Cold War, but that's not the only reason. Uh, satellites make war less likely. If we look at the, the military past, including the military near past, many battles began because two opponents did not know where each other's forces were, and now everybody knows all the time where everybody else mm-hmm. is. And I think that's good. It discourages war. Land is less valuable than it was in the past, even though the population is rising, because you no longer need to seize land to feed your population. Green Revolution, high-yield crops can do it. Uh, Labor is less valuable than it was in the past. In the military sense, many wars were fought partly for the purpose of seizing slave labor, and, and now there's really no need to do that to generate wealth. People are still mistreated in many terrible ways, but but very few nations are engaged in the expropriation of slave labor anymore, and probably they never will be again. And, and, and most importantly, perhaps from the standpoint of whether nations will fight, no primary resource is scarce. And there's no reason to think any primary resource will become scarce in the short term anyway. I mean, who knows what will happen by the by the end of the century. But for the next 20, 30, 40 years, there's plenty of everything to go around. So why fight? Now, these are all just logical reasons. And as you said, Larry, some, sometimes folly prevails. Um, but I think fighting on land, fighting in the air, in this century at least, there's only been a couple of major land battles and only one major air battle and no major sea battles. I think that trend is going to continue for all nations. To ask you, I have a question that's outside of this area, and you could say you could just punt on it. But you mentioned in your opening remarks that our global supply chains are are screwed up right now. Um, what do you think is going on? How can we fix it? Um, how do we explain why you know a a double digit increase in tra- unexpected trade has really um, thrown some sand in the gears here? And how do we fix that? Well, I think the main thing that's going on in the disruption of supply chains 
is there's plenty of goods available in the world. In fact, the ships that are full of them are parked off Southern California waiting for their turn to unload cargo. The main thing that's going on is that docks are having trouble getting employees, even though they're offering 50 to $60 an hour for unskilled labor. Uh, that's why all those ships are parked off the port of Los Angeles and the port of Long Beach, because they can't get enough people to do the unloading and the putting them into, into rail cars. Uh, I, I spend about a third of the blue age on the infrastructure of docks around the world, and the first example that I give is the Port of Los Angeles. There's, there's a whole chapter there with interviews of the officials, the management and, and, and labor there, and how the dock functions and so on. And the dock functions in part because people show up for work on time. And in the last year, that hasn't been happening. Uh, they've gotten way behind their curve. They're trying to recover, in part by offering even more. A couple of days ago, Port of Los Angeles was offering $75 an hour for people with any experience working on a port. Um, and, and that amount of money is finally drawing out labor. And as labor is drawn out, they'll get those ships unloaded, and then things will mostly go back to normal. At least that's what I would hope. Um, but the, the port aspect of it has more relevance than you would think. And since almost all of us never see a modern container port, there's no reason why you should even want to see one. We don't appreciate how significant they are. About 10% of California's economy comes from the ports at Los Angeles and, and next door at Long Beach. And, and the, the axiom that I invent in the Blue Age is that any place in the world you go where there's a busy port, the lives of average people are improving. And that's certainly true all throughout the Pacific Rim. So I, I end each uh, episode with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about, Greg, as it relates to uh, U.S. naval power uh, and global supply chains? I am optimistic both that the United States and China are not going to fight and that in general, I can't say everywhere, every time, that the nations of the world are going to spend less on war and more on education and health care. That last statement, less on war and more on education and health care, has been the, the case every year but one since 1987. We don't sense that or, or understand that, in part because our media is totally devoted to keeping everything as negative as possible. The New York mm -hmm. Times won't report that fact that I just mentioned, although it's a statistical fact and the sources are in, in the Blue Age, because they don't like that fact because it's not scary and frightening. But that's what's happening worldwide, and I think that's going to continue to happen. Nations will be in competition. Nations will get angry at each other. There's got to be some shots fired in anger somewhere. But in general, nations are going to be more aware that fighting accomplishes nothing and only hurts your own economy. And, and, and I contend that the situation is fundamentally different from what it was just before World War I. And yes, it's true. People have said this time it's different before, and it hasn't been different. I'm going to double down and say this time it's different, and the arguments are, are detailed at some length in my book. Great. Thank you, Greg. Um, we're going to move on to our second speaker, who is Laura Walls. Laura is the William and Hazel White Professor of English uh, at Notre Dame. Uh, she's also the author of Henry David Thoreau, A Life. Laura, why don't you take us through your six minutes? Thank you, Larry. All right change of subject here. Uh, 
So I would say that Thoreau matters today because he was trying to change our minds. Of course, he can't do that because the only person who can change your mind is yourself, and Thoreau knows that. But he has to try anyway because he sees somewhere out on the horizon a new world rising, and he thinks that it won't rise unless he can get a few of us to open our minds and hearts so that we can see it too then we might have a shot at a better future together, all of us. And by us, Thoreau means all of us, the immense plenitude of planet Earth. That includes all the human peoples, of course. Uh, the ones he was concerned with were those that modern America was working overtime to erase. He points to the Africans whom we enslaved to build the land of the free, the Native Americans whose land it was, the women who were doing the unpaid and invisible work of the household, the Mexicans against whom uh, America had declared a war of conquest, and the Irish refugees who were at that moment fleeing to Boston in such numbers. But Thoreau also meant the plenitude of living beings and vital processes that weave together the cosmos beyond our built, human-centered world, all that we collectively call nature. And so we call Thoreau a nature writer. But he was more a writer of the cosmos, which he knew meant the beauty and order of the universe from deep geological time to the fragile and ever-changing surface of the planet Earth, that great whole, which takes up and incorporates human agency without being contained by it. Thoreau went to Walden to find the cosmos and our place in it. He came back to town to tell us what he found. So let's talk about Walden. Thoreau, we often hear, was a hermit in the woods. What selfishness, what misanthropy, say the cynics. Hey, didn't his mom do his laundry? Um, well, no, actually. Um, Thoreau's family home was a boarding house, and the laundry was done by the Irish immigrants they took in to help them get a foothold in the American economic system. But that's beside the point. Walden Pond was a little over a mile's walk from the center of town, Concord, Massachusetts. Every few days, Thoreau walked home to do his chores and join his family for dinner. If being part of a loving family and having friends one visits and helps out is hypocrisy, then, my God, are we all in trouble. But even back then, there were, yes, cynics and skeptics, folks who mocked Thoreau because he was different. He had a different way of looking at the world. He was shy and awkward, and he loved the world's wild beings. Some of those critics were popular tastemakers with loud voices, which didn't help Thoreau's cause much. As for him, yes, he was a dreamer, but he was also a sworn realist. In my biography, I argue that he had to be. He was born into a family of French immigrants and Yankee tradesmen who were just scraping by. The family scrimped to send Henry to Harvard, where he was derided because he couldn't afford a proper coat. They prospered only after he returned from Harvard and applied his learning, his education, to his father's struggling family business, which was making pencils. Now, Thoreau loved machinery. He loved knowing how things work. He invented both the modern pencil, as we know it, and he invented the machinery to make it. After all, everyone needs a good pencil. And Thoreau needed good pencils, too, so he could take notes and make sketches on his long daily walks, jotting ideas and observations in all weathers. These penciled notes were the germs of his many books and essays. 
Henry Thoreau was restless, strange. He was driven by that need to see into the heart of the cosmos. More than one of his friends thought he could have been a good monk. He relished good conversation, but he also fiercely guarded the solitude he needed for a creative life, the inner life of an artist. He'd gone to Walden with his life in crisis after veering from one dead end to another until the only choice left to this young man was to follow the crazy dream he'd cherished since childhood, which was to go away and live by the pond and write his way through the changing seasons. And he did just that for two years, from July 1845 to September 1847, on land that Emerson had purchased. While at Walden, Thoreau wrote one book and most of another, or much of another, and a few essays too. One of them was civil disobedience. To explain to his townsmen why he went to jail rather than pay the taxes that supported slavery, the war against Mexico, and the removal of Native Americans. It's the mark of an age different than our own, perhaps, that his fellow townspeople came to his lectures and listened respectfully. And he changed a few of their minds, too. Thoreau was eccentric and sharp-tongued and funny. And he stepped on toes, and they loved him for it, and they respected what he had to say. When Thoreau died, just as the Civil War was starting, the town released all the school children from school that day so they could attend his funeral. I'll close with just a handful of things that he told his neighbors and is telling us. One, keep it simple. That makes both our mistakes and what we care about easier to see. Two, no, you can't move to Walden Pond. Walden is not a place to live, but a philosophy of life. If it isn't portable, it does no good. Three, sometimes Walden Pond isn't where you need to be in any case. When politics turn the world into what Thoreau called hell, you need to go not to nature but to a public stage to offer to the world without flinching your most scorching critique of injustice. And finally, four, but sometimes Walden Pond is exactly where you need to go because nature is where you can see how political injustice and environmental depredation share a common cause. Yes, politics is big, but the cosmos is bigger. As Thoreau declared to his conquered neighbors, your scheme must be the framework of the universe. All other schemes will soon be in ruins. So, is Thoreau a pain and a braggart? Yes, of course he is. But he believed that a true democracy could tolerate a few souls who, like himself, lived independent lives. He called them democracies wild fruits. And as he said of Walt Whitman, in whom Thoreau recognized a fellow spirit, there are a few who earned that right. I would agree, and I'm glad that he claimed that right for us as well. That's the end of my prepared remarks. Thanks, Laura. Um, let's start with the, his, his field of transcendentalism, where he worked with uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, how has transcendentalism affected philosophy, American philosophy specifically, uh, into the 21st century? Is it the cornerstone or at the, at the base of, of environmentalism? Um, how should we think about the continuation of transcendentalism today? It's an interesting question. I think that transcendentalism itself, there were many, many of them, and they wildly disagreed on many things. But the one thing they held in common was the belief, and this was a fundamentally religious belief, that every human being had uh, a, a God within, a likeness to God within. 
And that meant that every human being, um, no matter how downtrodden, all races, uh, all genders, had that spark of divinity, which it was our individual and collective responsibility to cultivate and nurture. Uh, so many of them were educators. So given that core, they, they went off in different directions, and some of them had uh, profound effects um, that we no longer are aware of because we take for granted. So one of them, Elizabeth Peabody, for instance, thought education meant rethinking how we educate children. And one of her uh, programs was uh, to institute kindergarten in American schools. And of course, when I ask my students, how many of you have gone to kindergarten, virtually everyone raises their hand. Um, the uh, environmental movement for Thoreau, who extended that sense of that spark of the divinity within humans to, to all creation, to all created beings. So the environmental movement fundamentally based that, that the natural world is not inanimate stuff or resource that we can do with whatever we want, but in fact has dignity and an inherent integrity of its own, which must be respected. Um, gosh, I could go on. Probably the most conspicuous, which I allude to in, with civil disobedience, was the fight against slavery. And uh, eventually that consumed pretty much all the transcendentalists because it was the fight starting especially in the uh, 1850s, the decade before the Civil War, that just became the imperative uh, uh, struggle of their day. And it involved almost all of them. So um, in terms of today, I don't know. It's it's hard for me to look around and see some place that or some uh, cultural institution that has not been affected by transcendentalism. Maybe the most interesting or possibly controversial would be uh, our famous American ethic of uh, individualism, right? Uh, me too, me first. Um, and that me first kind of mode of address to the world is often attributed to transcendentalism. But what I would say is that the transcendentalists did have that fundamental communitarian ethos, which was part of their congregational, institutional, religious uh, heritage. And it would have shocked them to have any line drawn from their version of individualism to uh, that which is often parading under the name of individualism today. You know, um Going back to your, one of your first points about some of Thoreau's neighbors thinking he was a hypocrite to go home uh, and have dinner with his mom. Oh, his uh, neighbors were fine day. with it. It's, it's the critics from afar who didn't know him who said that. <laughs> his neighbors, just he was just Henry. They'd wave to him yeah. on the street. And, you know, like I read this book, uh, Into the Wild by Krakauer. And, oh, yeah. you know, here this, this guy, I mean, he was nuts. I mean, he, he ran away... Um, and actually put himself at risk and, and died uh, yeah. from it. And it he, he had this desire, I think it's similar to what Thoreau was talking about, of kind of living in the wild, kind of being uh, you know, self-independent um, and really being at one with nature and, try, and trying to figure it all out. Um, and you know, Thoreau d did it on a much more minor scale, um, never at risk. And I guess to his critics, it reminded me a little bit when I used to, uh, as a child, do a sleep, you know, sleep out in the backyard in a tent. Um, yeah. <laughs> with, 
I, I've sometimes uh, said that Thoreau at Walden Pond was was essentially, you know, it was a little more robust than a tent. It was actually a little house, but it was basically like putting up a tent in your backyard and living in it for a while. And using it as an opportunity to write about nature. Um, well, that's the key. It was his one of his closest friends called it an ink stand by the pond. Uh, it was like a, an observation station, and it was within sight of a road, uh, the main road out of town, and the people who were on the road, for whatever reason, could see it, and he could see them, and, and there's he recounts conversations over the, uh, the the slight distance as he was working in the bean field, for instance, and the and he would leave a chair out in front of the house, and if the chair was out, it meant that he would uh, welcome company, and so people would just wander down and talk, um, and so he became quite conspicuous for those years he was at Walden, um, a kind of armchair philosopher, or leading kids out on nature walks and such. So the, the whole thing was, it had a different feel when you, again, my work as a historian, a, a literary historian, putting everything back into the context of the time, I came out with a very different sense of what he was about and what he was up to. Um, and yet there is an ethos in our own culture that is inspired by that to be to turn this uh, into a kind of hermit's quest and go into total isolation. Uh, and Chris McCandless is, of course, a tragic story. Uh, and, and I remember feeling the appeal when um, I was laughing. Greg said he was a washed-up hippie. <laughs> I was like, hey, two of us. Um, I remember that appeal, and I actually kind of, pushed that way for a little bit when I was young and uh, thought, no, that's the wrong way. That's not the path. And I think Chris McCandless, his own realization, alas, um, too late, was um, happiness is only real when shared with friends. And I one time, there's a cairn at Walden Pond on the site of where Thoreau built his house. The house is long, long gone. Um, I've, uh, people leave stones on the cairn and they write things on it. And some years back, I found a big stone and someone had written on the stone um, what McCandless says, happiness is only real when shared. And that still gives me goosebumps. Let me try to bring in some of the ideas um, from Greg's uh, first talk, and one related to the profound increase in um, wealth and well-being uh, resulting in global trade. Yeah. And Thoreau uh, is not a big believer in that, and so I'll highlight a couple of the points and, and let you go run wild with it. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't see much benefit uh, associated with trade with uh, other communities, he was uh, he loved, you know his his town and everything, but didn't see the need to build these rail lines and telegraphs and constantly trying to to get more stuff, uh, more consumer goods. Um, he wondered why his some of his Harvard classmates wanted to live in the suburbs and commute in and work all day long uh, instead of seeing the beauty of nature during the day. Um, and so he has a bit of an anti-capitalist, anti-consumerism aspect to, to his life um, and questioning uh, the motivation for um, global trade and global information. Um, how, how do we think about combining some of the ideas of, of Greg's talk with uh, Thoreau's philosophy? Well, sure, I'd push back first off. I mean, I think the key word there is stuff and consumerism. Uh, uh, Thoreau was worried profoundly that in... 
I, I have a dear friend who um, talks about splendid and unsplendid forms of um, transcendence, and, and the notion of a splendid kind of, of um, transcendence would, would be art and communication, writing, um, uh, good conversation, as opposed to an obsession with working to get more money, to buy more stuff that then immediately provokes the need to, like, it's not the latest, it's not the best. We have to go out and get more stuff to, to fill this this constant uh, uh, desire for, uh, for for more. And Thoreau is, I mean, he loves trade. Look, he's a pencil maker. They sell their pencils all over the United States. And how did he learn to make pencils? Because the best pencils were coming over from Germany and France and, and England, and uh, that's trade. And the point was they were fabulously expensive as imports in the United States. And Thoreau wanted to make a good American pencil. So he, by, by the time he was finished with his innovations, uh, the Thoreau pencil was the best made in America. So uh, trade and ideas. Thoreau was a scholar at Harvard and beyond who read uh, as much world literature as he could lay his hands on. Um, he knew what, I think I counted seven different languages. Uh, Elizabeth Peabody opened a bookstore in Boston where they sold Thoreau pencils and also the books Thoreau wrote and all the books of his friends. But the point of the bookstore was to import books from all over the world so that Americans could read ideas um, and, and uh, poetry, philosophy, uh, science, and economics from every part and religious texts from every part of the globe. And so the whole sense of commerce and trade, I mean, Walden, the send-up is, uh, the whole first long chapter is titled Economy, is not against capitalism so much as a reframing. Capital, kaput, means from the head. And he's saying, you know, lead with your head, think. Don't just mindlessly sort of fall into uh, uh, going to the mall every time you feel an emptiness in your soul and trying to plug it with, you know, whatever stuff you can drag home, uh, which does the planet no good, but it also does you no good. So he's all for trade. He's a very cosmopolitan thinker, as were all the transcendentalists. Um, Thoreau himself, the farthest he could go abroad was, you know, north to Canada, French Canada. But uh, the transcendentalists, uh, his friends, um, traveled and went to Europe mostly, but uh, or the far west, which was pretty far back in those days. So I think the the key there is is to think about um, the the kind of stuff consumer mentality uh, and explore what pushing against that might mean. You know, just uh, expand on slavery and and the, the time. Um, and go to John Brown as a topic. Um, mm-hmm. On our last episode of What Happens Next, we had Alan Guelzo, uh, who's a professor at Princeton, uh, on his biography of Robert E. Lee. Mm-hmm. And Robert E. Lee, uh, ironically, was you know like one of the top members of the U.S. Army b- before the Civil War. And when John Brown um, took hostages, uh, in Virginia, in the uh, late 1850s, it was uh, Robert E. Lee who went um, and lay siege on John Brown that captured him, and and he was sentenced mm-hmm. to death as part of that. Um, but just a few years prior to that, 
incident, John Brown was meeting with Henry David Thoreau uh, up near Walden. Um, maybe you could comment on Thoreau's relationship with Brown and how his um, capitulation to Robert E. Lee set him off. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting episode because uh, Brown, of course, was fundraising um, for Harper's Ferry when he made twice. He came through Concord and uh, uh, met Thoreau the first time in 1857. Thoreau was skeptical, but then the second time, uh, 1859, Thoreau was um, persuaded. And so this, the larger context was, you know, the, the friends that uh, introduced John Brown to the community, including Thoreau. Uh, but what really persuaded Thoreau was the chance to talk with Brown. And it's unclear that they knew about the massacre, um, the Potawatomi massacre. Um, I, I think that they did not, although I think one key person did, but he kept his mouth shut. So there was not an awareness of the kind of... of um, violence that Brown had already committed. It, what there was uh, great awareness of, um, the the sense that John Brown had to be crazy, as, as was said after Harper's Ferry, because he thought that uh, uh, black men were the equal of white men and women were the equal of men, that that was evidence of Brown's craziness. Well, that was fundamental transcendentalism. Um, and so Thoreau says John Brown was a transcendentalist above all. And by that time, um, Thoreau has moved from a nonviolent stance that is in um, the foundation of civil disobedience. Original title was resistance to civil government. So you could think of it as a kind of civil resistance. In any case, he'd moved from that um, conviction that nonviolence was the only path to social change um, and uh, ending injustice to a altered sense that violence was already let loose and was destroying the lives of, as Thoreau kept saying, the four millions of slaves. Therefore, um, the only the only answer was was no longer nonviolence, but only uh, violence in protection uh, could bring justice. So, I think. Thoreau moved, the nation moved, and John Brown became the leader of that movement toward um, recognizing the systemic violence of the United States had gone too far to address with nonviolent solutions. And so after Harper's Ferry, Thoreau was, I can't swear that he was the very first, but he was at least one of the very first to stand up and defend John Brown and say, he's not crazy, he's not a criminal. Um, now is a moment of decision. We have to decide whether to listen to him and end slavery now without, uh, without qualification, or if not, it's going to be war. Um, I have a question about educating our young people. Um, I mentioned this briefly in my um, introductory remarks, and I want to expand on it now. Um, as I mentioned, I, uh, you know, in, a, in a my American literature class in junior of high school, um, the syllabus included um, Thoreau and Emerson, but also as well Nathaniel Hawthorne and uh, Moby Dick as well as that sort of New England, uh, both philosophy and literary works. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And today, um, the American syllabus uh, is changing. It's uh, fewer 
dead white males, um, also less of a focus on uh, New England-based philosophical works. Um, how do you feel about this adjustment to the curriculum? Uh, do you think we should stick with the old, is it, uh, or should we move on away from transcendentalism and Emerson and Hawthorne and, and Melville? Your thoughts on uh, what to teach our American high school students? Sure. I do get those high school students when they come to me as uh, college students, and I quiz them every time. Most, Many, if not most of them, do still read the books, Emerson and Thoreau. They, they often read fairly, uh, they don't read widely, let's say. They might read, you mentioned reading Emerson's Self-Reliance, uh, and maybe a chapter or two from Walden. So they have some familiarity. No, I, I think, um, gosh, I think the expansion uh, of literature and, and uh, uh, cultural studies uh, to, uh, you know, the broadening of the canon, the broadening of the curriculum is important and essential, and I value it, and I participate in it. Um, I th- for instance, uh, when I was taking courses in transcendentalism, no one, no one paid too much attention to Margaret Fuller, now her text, The Great Lawsuit, which is the first great philosophical argument in the United States for uh, equality uh, of uh, women with men, well, that's foundational and a very important text and, and one that speaks to students today profoundly. Uh, when I was in college, we did not read Frederick Douglass. I, not till I was back in graduate school did uh, I become aware of Douglas and the slave narrative, and now I teach Douglas and Thoreau next to each other. It turns out that uh, Thoreau had met Douglas, uh, who had actually stayed at his home, and I think that Douglas had a profound influence on on Thoreau. So teaching to get teaching them together, broadening our sense of the uh, what writers were responding to, how they were in conversation with each other, and how they can speak to us. Um, is is vitally important part of our education today, and I'd like to see students in high school. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's not a zero sum, right? I mean, I know there's you know limited time, only so many classes, only so many years, and I'm always limited. Something's got something's always yeah. got to give. How could you not know? Right? Yeah, how could you not know this? Uh, how could you not have read that? But perhaps, uh, I mean, it's not just more content, stuffing more in. But I think there has to be selective approaches. I, I think that teaching, uh, I mean, instead of dumping all of Walden on a student, you, you might have a, a, a segment of the course, a, a given high school course, on uh, the Civil War moment or the run-up to the Civil War moment in which you would teach a number of texts, including Thoreau. You might teach an environmental, of course, a question about American environmentalism and include a selection from Walden or, or Thoreau's essay, Walking, etc. You know, a course on how to lead, live the good life might include his essay, uh, Life with um, uh, Life Without Principle, etc. In other words, there's so many texts that are out there that could be taught beautifully without um, a feeling that we need to choose this writer over that one, but teach them together and create a conversation. I have a question about uh, Notre Dame as a university um, and how it contrasts with others. Um, obviously, Notre Dame comes from a, a Catholic background uh, and it is is known as, as a more religious school. 
Um, I went to Penn. It was originally created by the Quakers, but it has the Quakers have little to no influence anymore at that university. Oh, not how, the Quakers, does, uh, Catholics. Uh, yeah, the. Uh, I was referring to my I was referring to my university at, at Penn. Um, oh, oh, I'm sorry, the Quakers. Example, yes. Okay, I missed that. Thank you. So I'm just wondering, um, what does it mean that Notre Dame is today the great Catholic university? How does that affect uh, the teaching of literature? Um, at Notre Dame, how does it interweave into uh, the humanities, the education of the humanities? Well, what I like about uh, teaching at a Catholic universe, university first is um, I needed to understand transcendentalism, of, uh, an environment where I could uh, move deeply into uh, studies of American religion and religious history. Uh, and it really has helped me to uh, work with people for whom religion, not just Catholic, but many forms of religion, um, are, 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 are living uh, traditions in, 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 in which they are fully invested. And I came from a secular background and had always gone to secular schools. So this was all kind of a new world to me. But the big C Catholic versus the small C Catholic, you know, I, when I first interviewed, I was puzzled, like, why are they interested in somebody who teaches American Protestant transcendentalism? And once I was on campus, I realized it's because of the small c of, of Catholicism. This is a university that welcomes, uh, as they um, had on there, as they kept telling me, um, people of all faiths or none. Uh, the, the small c Catholic uh, uh, element is embracing all possible traditions and all forms of truth and wants to create this great, again, my word, conversation from the previous answer. So I, as soon as that started to dawn on me, and I felt very much at home, and I find the same thing um, just in day-to-day -day, uh, interaction with everyone here at Notre Dame. So the, the sense of a great humanistic tradition that must be, must be upheld is still very strong. The humanities are under pressure, of course, everywhere. Uh, universities and colleges and high schools across the land, but uh, Notre Dame has still succeeded in holding up the humanities um, as core of of our identity and our teaching. So that deep element um, uh, is is again we have the sciences, we have business and so on, but but we don't feel that we're losing ground. We, we might say so sometimes, but uh, our students are still uh, able to join us and um, bring that interdisciplinary uh, uh, breadth of learning into whatever specialties and professions they move out into. Um. As I do with Greg, uh, I want to always end on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about as it relates to the study of Thoreau and his ideas as it relates to our, our current uh, civilization? I am optimistic because when I teach Thoreau, uh, my students light up. And the sense that when they read him, they're, they, they are freshly discovering him. It's actually a little easier now that he's not so often taught in high schools or at least taught in such length because they're not turned off by someone who says, well, you know, he, well, the whole old line about his mother did his laundry and so on. So they come to Thoreau fresh and they're excited. 
Um, they, they read someone who says, dream bigger, think bigger. My opening line about Thoreau saw a world rising on the horizon, a better world, and that if we can join him in, in anticipating the world to come, that it's a better world, what he calls at the end of civil resistance, the kind of, um, uh, I'm, I'm turning to it now just to have his exact words, the, the, the sense that a democracy, um, and again, a democracy of all, uh, well, here's the line, a state which bore this kind of wild fruit and suffered it to drop off as fast as it ripened would prepare the way for a still more perfect and glorious state, which I have which also I have imagined, but not yet anywhere seen. That sense of imagining a world that is better than the one that we're living today, and that if we imagine it and live towards it, it we, we can help bring it into being, is a sense that my students derive from Thoreau very easily. And they start talking about this as giving them hope for living toward their own future at a time of, you know, uh, um, especially climate change, um, global warming, which haunts them with a sense that the future is not theirs um, to plan for anymore. But if we speak to them about action to bring up that better world around, um, suddenly they feel they have a role and agency and excitement, which is how I felt when I first encountered Thoreau in the early 1970s. Um, he gave me hope and a plan and a sense of agency that... Uh, I've still been able to, to what, I want to use the word wings. Um, there's something about him that gives people wings, and that gives me hope. Thank you so much, Laura. All right, that ends today's session. I want to just spend a second making a plug for our next episode. Next Sunday, October 24th, we will have three speakers. Uh, the first is Claudia Golden, who is the Henry Lee Professor of Economics at Harvard. She has a new book out entitled Career and Family, Women's Century-Long Journey Toward Equality. Claudia is one of the best economic historians on gender issues. Claudia was also my professor at Penn, where she taught me microeconomics. Our second speaker will be Elizabeth Cassio, who is the DeWalt H. 1921 and Marie Ankeny Professor in Economic Policy at Dartmouth. Liz will discuss her recent work on child care and early education and policy design. Our final speaker will be David Deming, who is the Isabel and Scott Black Professor of Political Economy at Harvard. Dave will discuss his new research on the growing importance of decision-making on the job. If you are interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes or wish to read a transcript, you can find them on the website whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you. You can disconnect at this time. Bye-bye. Okay. So long, guys. Thank you Bye, very thank much. Thank you. It was Bye, wonderful. Laura. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.